and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Today we'll speak with Professor Donald Brennis, co-editor of the Annual Review of Anthropology. Brennis specializes in social and linguistic anthropology and taught anthropology for more than 20 years at Pitzer College near Los Angeles before moving to UC Santa Cruz in 1996. He is past president of the American Anthropological Association, edited American Ethnologist, and has served on the editorial board of numerous publications, including American Anthropologist, Anthropology in Action, the University of California Press, and the Annual Review of Anthropology. Professor Brennis, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks very much, and it's a real pleasure to be talking with you. So why don't you start out by telling me a little about your fieldwork in Fiji? How did you first become interested in that part of the world? Well, my my interest when I went to graduate school after several years in the Peace Corps and working as a social worker was really in in thinking about language and social life, and particularly the way that language is not only about the world, but a way of shaping the world that people used collaboratively. And very early on in my graduate my graduate school days at Harvard, I my wife and I both began to work with a faculty member who was putting together a research project to look at law and conflict in Fiji in the South Pacific. Um, at the time, he didn't know that I already spoke Hindi and had been living on the Nepal-India border. I didn't know that there were people of South Asian extraction living in Fiji. And so my doctoral work really was informed in part by serendipity and in part by really being part of a comparative project that was looking at the kinds of conflicts that arose, the ways that people used used the court in the context of the small but heterogeneous community uh, with ethnic Fijians, the descendants of Indian immigrants who would come over to work in the sugarcane plantations, and um, a variety of other folks as well. And then my wife was studying the court. Now, your research in the Southwest Pacific falls into a pretty traditional view of anthropology, going out into the bush, uh, away from urban areas. How has anthropology changed since those days? Well, there's it's changed dramatically. There, there was one point when Margaret Mead, at least apocryphally, was asked what the difference between anthropology and sociology was, and to which her response was that anthropology was for sociologists who liked to camp. And the notion was there was an almost geographic distribution of labor. We took the countryside, particularly the countryside outside of the, the Atlantic world, and the sociologists took the cities and the, the assumedly modern part of the world. Anthropologists now are almost everywhere, in cities, in very large-scale, complex societies, and in part, even when they're in those small-scale communities that used to be the heartland of our discipline, they're, they're working there with the recognition that even the most remote community is embedded in a very complex set of regional and transnational relationships. So that kind of fiction of cultural isolation that informed a lot of work in the past of our field has really gone away. How have you been able to tie your work in the Southwest Pacific to the world at large? Well, I'll give you one example because I, there's been a kind of radical discontinuity in terms of, of my own work. For the first 15 years or so of my research career, I worked very much in a village, in a local language, the local variety of Hindi, um, and was really studying primarily face-to-face interactions within the context of a larger society, but still very much at the local level. But the kinds of issues I was 
interested in, for example, how language figured as a way of generating conflicts, managing conflicts, making social relationships possible at all in the community, uh, occasionally even solving disputes when they arose, uh, were broader questions and particularly interesting for me in the, the Fiji Indian context because in contrast to that part of North India where folks had, folks' grandparents had immigrated from, the, um, the local notion was that people should treat each other as equals rather than within the kind of caste hierarchies that certainly played an important role in, in India. So really thinking about how you shape a social world while at the same time sustaining relationships of equality, of not letting uh, other people claim to be better or more powerful or more valuable than you were, was a really infor crucial informing aspect of people's lives in that village. To flash forward a bit to my current work, which really came out of my participation on funding panels as an editor, as somebody increasingly invested in this sort of institutional life of anthropology, I really got fascinated by a very similar kind of theoretical question, but in the context of peer review and of those moments in quite complex, for example, social science funding bureaucracies in which colleagues got together and were expected not only to be reviewing the work of their peers, but at the same time enacting being peers or equals with each other in the context of the committee meetings. I want to come back to your work on peer review and evaluation in a minute, but tell me a little bit about your research on male gossip. Sure. Um, in terms of thinking about and coming to understand the, the sort of social life of language in the, the village where I worked in Fiji, I was really interested in all sorts of contexts in which people talked when they gave speeches at religious meetings, gatherings, uh, when people just talked over the events of the day with each other, and also with gossip. Um, and gossip, you know, a lot of people have looked at gossip in the U.S. where they tend almost stereotypically to associate it with women and girls. Uh, I'm one of the few people who's actually looked at men gossiping and listened to men gossiping and analyzed miles of tape of men gossiping in, in Hindi. And there, there's reason to think that American men gossip as well. But one of the, the things about thinking about gossip is that in that context, it was not only a way of sort of evaluating and making comments on the usually less than desirable behavior of other people who didn't happen to be in the conversation, but it was also a way of really knitting together close social ties between the people who were gossiping. So there was a great deal. One of the striking things about gossip for me was the fact that it sounded really interesting. People spoke often at the same time. They spoke in rhythm with each other. They often imitated each other's intonation contours, this sort of melody of conversation. The, the, my friends in Botgowan would say that the deeper the gossip, the more we speak with one voice. And in many ways, that was actually what was, was happening. And so in a community where, given the egalitarian ethos or the egalitarian value, values that people claim to hold, it was actually very difficult to be sociable outside of the family. The sort of style of gossip, as well as the amiably scurrilous content of gossip, made it possible for people to have these intense kind of social relationships. The, the other thing that was really important about gossip is that in many ways, because 
people rarely talk directly about conflicts in the village. And because part of what I was there to find out about was conflict, I really got interested in the kind of information economy of the village. How did people contribute information, learn about what was going on? You know, in some ways you could think of it as a face-to-face -face version of a networked society, but where the information was being passed on often in quite coded ways and gossip provided really important nodes in that communication system. Now, can you translate that research to say a boardroom at the NSF or some other place that our listeners would be more familiar with? Absolutely. I think that one thing that's crucial to point out is that we don't gossip at NSF. That's not what's going on. However, some other kinds, it's, it's, it is a point at which face-to-face -face communication, an understanding of the reputation of scholars, as well as the possibilities of their research, are being discussed, usually almost always being discussed, you know, with considerable admiration at the same time as criticism, but a lot of the similar kinds of issues on the uh, around the dynamics of social relationships among people around the table, as well as the nature of the scholarship itself are both in play. You told me a little bit about being able to hear a consensus developing in a room. Can you talk to me a little about that? Sure. One of the striking things in interviewing program officers at National Science Foundation about their work and also just in listening as a panel member myself to, um, to, the, to the discussion was there would often be a point at which the, the program officer would say, I think I hear a consensus forming. And at one level, you could think of this as enough already. We've talked enough about this one. Let's move on to the next case. But in discussions with with the program officers, they said, no, there actually are things you hear in the nature of the conversation that make you think that if not consensus, at least a common ground has been achieved. And that's marked not only by what people are explicitly saying, but by how they're saying it. And by something actually similar to that kind of stylistic convergence that was really central to good gossip in Fiji. Again, panelists aren't gossiping, but they're doing similar kinds of things with the style of talk. How do you define gossip? Because I'm curious, you, you very quickly said we don't, the NSF doesn't gossip. And in my mind, gossip is a thing that happens all the time. It's, it's, it's just people chattering about unimportant things, maybe, or, or important things, but in a very social context. What does it actually mean? Well, there's a, I really love the way you asked that question, Mia, because... One of the things about in the literature about gossip is it's often defined as being by nature trivial, that it's dealing with, with small incidents, with things that are worthy of ridicule and the like. But at the same time, often gossip in the ordinary sort of day-to-day -day sense is often really about issues that we care the most about, appropriate behavior, uh, people behaving badly, occasionally people behaving well. And anthropologists have written about gossip often as providing a kind of negative model for what good behavior is. So often, even in these trivial interchanges, really important kinds of issues are in play. When I've defined gossip in some of my writing, I've really defined it partly in terms of the subject matter, that it's usually about negative, negative kinds of behavior rather than the general reporting on, have you heard you know, this remarkable thing that's happened. 
Uh, so it's often negative commentary on negative behavior with a fair amount of moral evaluation. And it, by definition, has to be about people who were not present in the event. So I would distinguish gossip from sort of conversation or more general kind of catching up on what people are doing. Is it possible to connect your work on gossip to your work with higher education assessment? Sure, because one of the ways of thinking about gossip is that gossip is a crucial aspect of reputation and reputation management. You could think of the politics of reputation in any community, from radio professionals to our, for, from people in communication media to kids on the schoolyard to academics and in different scientific disciplines. And certainly in the context of the village where I worked in Fiji, where one's reputation was in some ways a principal value that one, that one relied on but didn't have total control over, gossip was absolutely central to the political life of the community. Certainly a great deal of the work that goes on both in such practices as peer review, the assessment, the evaluation, of programs and the like has to do with the question of reputation, the past reputation and records of indi and past reputation and accomplishments of individual scholars, of particular research programs, of particular departments, particular areas within a discipline and the like. Um, and a lot of the discussion, while usually couched in different terms from how gossip would be couched, a lot of the discussion in evaluative context is around these same kinds of questions of reputation and the kind of future trajectory that those reputations suggest for whether individuals or institutions. Now, I want to go back and, and talk about your work on peer review and evaluation. You mentioned that Google and other methods of quote-unquote mechanized evaluation are confusing what's popular with what's good. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I, I think I would, in this context, phrase it somewhat differently and, and move Google for the moment a little bit to the sidelines. One of the things that's been really remarkable over the past 20 or 30 years in terms of assessing, again, both individuals and institutions has been the rise of what's sometimes called analytic or, or bibliometric methods of evaluation. And bibliometry or bibliometrics really comes out of some early attempts in the sociology of science to look at the relationship between different scientists or different scholars and the effect that they have on each other. So uh, the Thompson Scientific Index was developed as a resource for looking at who is citing whom in major journals in the scientific literature. And initially that was meant to be a kind of descriptive and analytical style, a way of understanding where the intellectual connectivity was, and of, in some ways trying to help shape circumstances in which that kind of connectivity could be heightened. So again, a, a geographically displaced information community, but in some ways analogous to what went on in the village in Fiji. What happened, as often happens though, is that a technology developed for description and analysis became a technology for measurement. And so an index was, that was developed for looking at the connections among scientists and particular styles of science also then became a way of assessing impact or the longer-term consequences and value of science. 
which in many ways could be a very good thing, but it's also complicated because of the nature of the instrument that's set up for measurement. What's now called the Reuters-Thompson Index, only in, it involves 9,000 journals, which is a very large number of journals, but very small compared to the number of journals in science and social science that there are there. It also only considers citations that are made within a two-year window. So they have to be very, there has to be a very rapid turnaround. In some sciences, this makes perfect sense because people do indeed read and sometimes even cite pieces before they actually appear in print. In other fields within the hard sciences, as well as within the social sciences that are also part of this, um, it takes much longer for works to be read, thought about, critiqued, and responded to. So there are different epistemologies or styles of, of coming to understand phenomena at work. There also are different kinds of citational practices. So these kinds of what are called quantitative or sometimes analytical methods have a lot of promise and provide a great deal of information, but it's information that always needs to be contextualized in relationship to the norms and the practices of different kinds of fields. Uh, or even of subfields within anthropology, for example, biological anthropology pieces often do get cited within the first two years. Uh, and in part, that reflects the close relationship between biological anthropology and particular branches of the, of the natural sciences where those kinds of practices are in play. Work in cultural and linguistic anthropology, on the other hand, tends to have a much longer half-life People may only start citing it four or five years later, but will keep on citing it for the longer term. Um, and that's those kinds of practices of real influence or those phenomena in which influence really matters are, are invisible through the present analytical framework that we have available to us. So putting this in Google terms, is it possible that something that doesn't get enough hits could sort of fall to the bottom of the list because of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And that and that's a real concern. I mean, the you can think of hits in some ways. I wouldn't say it's just a popularity measure, but it certainly is a kind of reputational measure. Uh, but it may they may it may be taken more seriously than it deserves to be. Again, in some fields the hits the hits probably provide a pretty accurate measure of impact. In other fields, uh, the effects are slower. There's, there are also actually questions of what's being read or considered by Google when they put together their, their own sort of reference points in the search engines. Um, they often depend on, re on mechanical readings, and literally mechanical readings of abstracts, which often are quite concise and linear in some fields, and other fields are much more general and less likely to be seen as relevant to the topic under consideration. So you worry about large chunks of the literature really vanishing. How can the process of peer review mitigate that problem? Well, I think that the, the greatest, and, and, and I'm not alone in this, a number, of, a number of groups, including a panel commissioned by the National Academy of Sciences, have really argued that the most effective kinds of assessments are ones that take quantitative measures into account, uh, but do it in the context of deliberative review, that is, of, of scholars who know the field being able to think about 
the quantitative material to think about it in terms of the practices characteristic of their own discipline or subdiscipline or field of inquiry and to evaluate uh, the content and their view of the content of the of the materials, taking those measures into account, but not just falling back on them. There was actually a move about three years ago in the United Kingdom to replace what was called the research assessment exercises, which was a very large scale, quite time consuming project of, of peer review within disciplines for evaluating programs, which is absolutely consequential for the funding of those programs at different institutions to replace the research assessment exercise with a purely bibliometric one, at least for the sciences. That is by just referring to the Thompson citation, uh, citation analysis framework and to the impact factor as a basis for funding programs altogether. And that, that was defeated, and, but it led to a great deal of concern on how you can draw effectively upon these more economical but only necessarily partial measures uh, within the context of expert judgment. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, in the preface to the annual review of anthropology, you talk about taking a holistic approach to the field. Can you talk a little about the cross-disciplinary nature of anthropology? Sure. And one way of thinking about it is I taught for many years in a liberal arts, arts context and spent a lot of conversations with parents of students saying, what are my, what's my child going to do with a major in anthropology? And my, my, argu my response, never an argument, always a response, was that anthropology is in some ways the liberal arts all in itself because we really are interested in humankind and non-human primates increasingly in terms of the broadest range of their history, their prehistory, their development, their biology, the kinds of social, cultural, and linguistic worlds that they collaboratively and at times competitively construct and how all of these intersect with each other. And so holism at one level really means trying to understand, even within a subspecialty within anthropology, the broadest possible context of human behavior, practice, belief, values. But it also really means thinking about humans in the broadest possible sense, taking into account the fact that we're biological beings, that we're beings that come out of particular histories, and at the same time that we're actively engaged in a world that both shapes who we are and that we're involved actively in shaping. And so, in particularly in terms of thinking about pedagogy and curriculum, about the ways in which our students learn about the field, I think it's absolutely indispensable to expose them to everything from questions of evolution and human genetics uh, and contemporary biological research to thinking about our relationship to non-human primates, to thinking about both the fossil and the archeological record, and also to thinking about how you come to understand the complexity of contemporary human lives, practices, communicative strategies, and the like worldwide. Uh, that's a pretty big, field of inquiry, and it's one where we have sort of Velcro points of attachment with lots of other fields as well. In our research, in fact, we may be more frequently in conversation with scholars in cognate or related disciplines than we are with people in other parts of our own disciplines. Certainly, the work of biological anthropologists is read by people within cultural anthropology, but it's also read 
very immediately and very avidly by people in paleontology and genetics work, uh, in psychology and a range of other fields as well. Similarly, cultural anthropologists are also writing for and in conversation with literary scholars, linguistic scholars, increasingly historians, uh, people in legal scholarship, um, and the like. So we have multiple audiences. There's a kind of almost inevitable centrifugality within the field at the research level because of the breadth of the interest of, our, of anthropologists and of the breadth of audiences from whom we want to be learning it and whom we want to be addressing. It seems, as an anthropology student myself, I remember the challenge of having to we were exposed to the different branches of anthropology, the physical side and the cultural side, but we pretty much had to focus on one or the other. So how can students of anthropology now maintain a holistic approach in their own work? I think it, at one le- and, and it really depends on, on the level in terms of gra- undergraduate or graduate students. Um, at the undergraduate level, there's really a question of of exposure and of getting people acquainted at least with core ideas in the different subfields and the kinds of intellectual perspectives that they afford you. Um, And you can do that either in the framework of a curriculum, which certainly we do here at Santa Cruz um, and most liberal arts colleges do as well, or you can even do it in the context of a particular course. So, for example, I teach a fairly experimental course on the anthropology of sound, which is a lower division, wide open enrollment course. I always have a colleague who works on the evolution of primate sensory processing come in and do a talk on on hearing and on the evolution of um, human auditory processing and the underlying sort of neurophysiology and neurophysics of sound, which is absolutely great, something I couldn't cover myself but which provides a really crucial resource point for students to go back and think about some of the the more ethnographic kinds of projects that we're involved in. They say, oh yeah, now I remember, you know, the inside of our ears are like the sides of fish with those particular neurons for detecting pressure. Uh, at the graduate level, different programs have different strategies. Um, you know, some really focus on a kind of more synthetic approach to sometimes what's called a biocultural approach, such as they've had for years at Emory. Others are um, have more separate tracks for biological, archaeological, linguistic, and, and sociocultural anthropology. Uh, I think that the, the crucial encouragement I would have for students is really to try to continue to read and think omnivorously. One of the great, and to just give you a quick example of this, one of the great experiences I had was when I was co-editing American Anthropologist for a year and a half during kind of interim period in the editorship, and only because I was co-editing was I in a position to read in detail or actually be forced to read in detail a set of articles about archaeology on plantations from the antebellum south and a set of articles by cultural anthropologists who were looking at the contemporary consequences of the Welfare Reform Act passed during the Clinton presidency. And what was really striking about that was that people, both in the historical archaeological context and the contemporary context, were forced to turn towards larger forms of mutual social support, of taking care of families, of taking care of each other. And it was exhilarating to see these crossovers between hunting strategies among slaves on plantations in Mississippi 
and the kind of collaborative strategies for sharing resources among mothers on, on, increase, on decreasing amounts of welfare support in Oregon. And I think thinking about the possible connections and how we can continue to learn from both historical analogs and from under, you know, detailed and really exciting emerging understandings of the biological nature of human life at the same time that we maintain a kind of subtle and critical eye to what's going on in the contemporary social and cultural world is something that anthropologists are actually pretty good at. It's also one of the reasons why I'm really excited about co-editing with Peter Ellison, my colleague in biological anthropology, the, um, the annual review of anthropology, because I think one of our goals is really to provide this kind of conversational framework in which people are really presenting, thinking about reframing, recontextualizing, really cutting-edge research on particular topics, approaches, issues in contemporary anthropology across the subfields, but where we're in a position to try to help put those papers together in ways where a cultural anthropologist could see really interesting work that's going on in biological anthropology, really kind of catalytic or thought-provoking work in historical archaeology, cognate work in linguistic anthropology that's presented in ways that are both theoretically sophisticated but not overly technical in their language, which is always a problem for us linguists, and to really bring that into thinking about their own projects, however specialized they might be. I noticed that there was a, an article on neuroscience in the annual review of anthropology. I thought that was fascinating. Right, and I think that, you know, annual review is, is really a remarkable opportunity for providing the possibilities for people to do their own synthetic work, you know, to be exposed to, to follow all these great, it's, it's actually one of the differences now that you can get the, the annual review articles online before publication, but October always used to be this exciting month for me because I would open the annual review well before I was directly involved with it, and it was like Christmas because there were so many possible things to be exploring, and I think that that capacity of, it's a very singular journal in terms of providing those kinds of Christmas moments, um, now year-long because of pre-publication, in which we can really think somewhat more imaginatively about locating our own work, drawing from the work of others, and, uh, and bringing things together in new ways. Well, Professor Brennis, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a real pleasure talking with you, Mia. Thanks. You've been listening to Annual Review's audio. Check back for our interview with co-editor of the Annual Review of Anthropology, Peter Ellison. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.